Welcome to the New Books Network. Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious. Emotions matter, and so does applying emotional intelligence. Welcome to Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, the podcast where emotions rule. Whatever the topic, how do hearts and minds collide? Find out with your host, a college professor turned globetrotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me for the 112th episode of my podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. The series appears here on the New Books Network, which has as its motto, sharing knowledge so people can thrive. Today's topic is Consumers Are Weird. I'm joined by Melina Palmer. She is the author of What Your Customers Wants and Can't Tell You. The publisher is Mango Publishing. Melina is the founder and CEO of The Brainy Business, Her award-winning podcast, The Brainy Business, Understanding the Psychology of Why People Buy, reaches 160 countries. Melina received a master's in behavioral economics from the Chicago School of Professional Psychology. She teaches at the Texas A&M Human Behavior Lab, and she also writes a column for Inc. Magazine. Welcome to the show, Melina. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, it's my distinct pleasure. So give us a sense of this book. What's it about? It is all about applying behavioral economics into business. So for anyone who has some familiarity in the space, which I know that you have some background there, so I'm guessing there's at least some of that. Um, a lot of the books that existed were very academic, as is the field in a lot of ways because it's still pretty young. And so you have really useful books that are helping people to have an awareness of behavioral economics, uh, but leaving you with this feeling of, that's really great. I love this, but what do I do? What, What does that mean for me? How do I go use that information? And so I wrote the book that I know I had podcast listeners from around the world and and people just asking for a, a way to really apply behavioral science into their work. Sure. Well, I, I certainly know some of those books that can be a little bit uh, heavy, heavy sledding. <laughs> I think I, I ordered one once that was so oh, in the range of 700 plus pages and Although I have a PhD and I uh, don't mind digging into really difficult texts, I at some point started feeling like I was reading the business equivalent of Finnegan's Wake by James Joyce. <laughs> yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it can happen. It can happen. So um, there's all sorts of wonderful stories, anecdotes, statistics that I think will blow some people's minds in the book. Uh, let's start with the statistics. Um, I'm going to throw out three. That doesn't preclude what you might choose for your answer here. Uh, you mentioned habits drive about 95% of behavior. Uh, maybe 99% of our decisions are made subconsciously. We make about 35,000 decisions a day. What's a favorite stat from your book and and why that one? Well, uh, I think you you listed off a lot of what I often share uh, as far as introducing the concepts of and really understanding how the brain works. I think the 35,000 remotely conscious decisions every day is something that is really eye-opening for people and being able to have this awareness, you know, that's not just like breathe in, breathe out, right? That is um, where you set your keys, where you put your coffee cup and having a knowledge that so much of what 
you do every day is based on habit. You know, those three things really go together in being able to have an awareness of how the brain makes decisions, realizing how much of that is done by the subconscious, and then knowing that if you can communicate with it, it makes it so it's much more likely to have a positive outcome than if you don't know the rules that it uses to make those choices. And so, um, yeah, those three, I think, are the ones I would have picked as well. So uh, we'll just go with that. Okay, no, fair enough. I, I mean, the 35,000 decisions is is really pretty staggering, and it, it certainly speaks to why the brain kind of works like a paper shredder and gets rid of as much as it can, mm. because there's, there's just not a lot of headspace there uh, when that much is coming at you all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So how about, um, I mean, obviously the book does a wonderful job of laying out some of the key behavioral economic principles. There's a lot of them. Um, is there maybe one or two that you gravitate to? You find our personal favorites for whatever reason, the ones that seem most applicable for uh, the client assignments you have. Maybe just walk us through saving two of those yeah. and and why they, they merit uh, being in your, your treasure chest of the favorite ones. <laughs> yeah. So the book itself, I assembled like a kind of like a reference book. Uh, it's not quite a textbook. It's not quite just a kind of popular reading. It's definitely intended to be something that doesn't just sit on a shelf. And it's something where you first learn about the brain, then you learn some concepts and then some ways to apply them as you go through the book. And it has you know, sections at the end of each chapter to say, hey, this concept comes up again in these chapters later. And uh, you know, it helps you to kind of choose your own adventure if you remember those sorts of books. <laughs> uh, from yeah. yeah. Have, you ever, have you ever read Hop? Scotch by Cortazar. He's a Brazilian writer. You, so. you can actually read the book two different ways. You can read it linearly or you can follow a number pattern and it's like hopscotch. Oh, You're cool. jumping around through the book. You, you might find that of some interest. Anyway, I interrupted. <laughs> keep, keep going. No, no, definitely great. Um, so I wanted it to be something that you could easily flip back and forth and not have to have that cognitive strain because of my understanding of how the brain works. You don't have to remember where that concept was. I, I tell you where to go find it. <laughs> Uh, so of the hundreds of concepts that could have been used, I pick 16 main ones uh, within the book. And the first one very intentionally is framing. And I would say for me, I think this is a favorite and it's one that is really easy for people to start to apply and use. So framing is uh, that how you say something matters more than what you say. And the easiest example for this would be, imagine you're going to the grocery store to buy some ground beef. There are two stacks that are almost identical. The only difference is one is labeled as 90% fat free and the other is labeled as 10% fat. As you hear that, you know, which one <laughs> do you want to buy? You you laugh here. So there's one that stands out to you. Which one feels better do you want to get? Well, I, I don't want to be obsessed about the fat. That's just fu unfun to think about that. So fat-free, yes. you know, <laughs> yeah. it's just feels a lot. I'm, I'm, I'm free. I'm going to be free. So, you know, I just, I seize on the word free and I let fat go. <laughs> yeah. And I have shared this with thousands of people around the world and overwhelmingly everyone says 90% fat free is the one that feels better and that they would want to buy. Logically, we know it's exactly the same thing, but the way that we hear it makes a difference in how we want to buy. And it would be 
kind of difficult to get yourself on board with buying the 10% fat version, even though, again, you know it's the same. So again, how you say it is more important than what you are saying. So in business, you may feel like, oh, our prices are too high or we don't have an appealing product or customers aren't ready for what it is that we're trying to sell. But really, you might just be talking about it wrong. You might have all that other stuff right, but you're trying to be out there promoting 10% fat ground beef, you know, whatever your equivalent is. And if you look for a way to reframe that message and have it be 90% fat free, it might be something that people then jump on without having to change anything else about your product or service. I, I like that. It must be very enabling for clients because honestly, a lot of clients do not have a very differentiated offer. Mm -hmm. So let them go to how I'm going to sell it yes. versus what it is. Right. Okay. So that that's one. What's a what's another one if you don't mind? Oh, I I never mind. I'm I'm happy to share about as many things. <laughs> um, okay. Well, in, in the twelfth hour, we'll get okay. to the fifteenth. All okay. right. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, I would say another that comes up. Um, a lot is uh, this concept of anchoring and another, which is how it's not only to do with numbers, but that's another way that it's easiest to give the example here. Um, so in this case, imagine we're back in that same grocery store. Uh, there were two different end cap displays that were used in this particular test. And they had in one case, it said Snickers bars, buy them for your freezer. And the other, it said Snickers bars by 18 for your freezer, which most of us can agree. 18 is a lot of Snickers and more than what most of us would go and buy. Um, and if you were the one creating that advertisement, it would probably feel like you don't feel super good about putting that out there. It's an arbitrary number that maybe you don't want to have to defend to somebody and, you know, them is unlimited and people could get a hundred if they want, you know, you're going to logic to yourself about why you don't want to put that out there. And you probably would say it doesn't make that big of a difference. But what this study found was there was actually a 38% increase in sales when the sign said the number 18 instead of the word them. And there are a couple of things happening here. One of them is this concept of anchoring and adjustment. And so when you see the word them, you know, it's more like a fancy word for zero. You probably aren't going to get any, but maybe you get two or three, we'll say. When you see 18, it hits your brain a little bit differently. And you would think something like 18, I'm way better than everybody else. I don't need 18. I'll just get six. So we anchored on the 18 and worked our way down and we ended up choosing a number that's much higher than what we would have when we go off of them. Uh, we also have a slightly differently framed question behind those statements. So in the case of them, you're saying, do you want Snickers? Are you interested? Would you like any? The question behind that number 18 is more of an implied sale. You're asking how many do you want to buy? And again, a tiny little shift, but it can make a huge difference in buying behavior when you start to pair and use these concepts together. Okay. Um, like both of those, I remember the, the, the story with the 18 very distinctly yeah. from the book. So uh, it broke through the clutter, yeah, got okay. my attention. <laughs> um, so, yeah, you mentioned this welter of behavioral economic principles that are out there. Um, I think all of us find handy when it can get boiled down. I guess maybe the most famous example is uh, is Maslow's hierarchy of needs or Schwartz created a, a value wheel. 
have you seen from uh, your readings and knowledge, including in Chicago and your education, uh, what you think is like the most handy, boiled down way of chart, diagram, uh, some of these key behavioral uh, economic principles? Mm. Um, Does anyone no. manage that feed, in other words? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah so the main thing that's been out is that there is a... Uh, a c- kind of a codex, I guess, of sorts that has all the concepts in this big circle around kind of like a brain and it's an image. But the people who created it, they say very specifically they have no background in behavioral science. They just went through and tried to put some stuff in a way that made sense to them. And I don't feel like the... um <laughs> the groupings are ones that I particularly agree with having a degree in the space. And so it's nice if you want to have some sort of awareness of some topics, but it's probably not my, I wouldn't recommend it. Um, the best place that I think I, I often tell people to go and look is just to behavioraleconomics.com. They have, um, they're kind of mini encyclopedia of behavioral economics principles. You can go look through and see a very quick summary of concepts and be able to kind of know, um, you know, what they are. And then they have some top academic research that you can go read more if you want. Okay. Well, that might be handy to, to listeners to this episode to be able to go there. How about just moving in the, in the practical vein to uh, big CX problems that you're asked to solve or, or weigh in on. You mentioned pricing in the uh, the book. Uh, you also mentioned menu selection. You might want to say a few words about each of those, but I'm also wondering what's what's kind of the, the rest of the punch list if you had to choose like a top five things that you find yourself applying behavioral economics too. I'd be curious and hopefully the listeners would be too. Yeah. Uh, so definitely pricing strategy is something that comes up often and I teach a class on that as well. Uh, the biggest thing for pricing. And we talked about this a little bit when I was talking about kind of how that uh, brain works with framing is, you know, pricing is almost never about the price, Uh, but the things that come before price matter much more than the price itself. And I have a chapter in the book called The Truth About Pricing, uh, and it goes through my kind of framework, which includes framing, anchoring is part of that, and there are some other concepts as well. Uh, But know that Again, even just starting with framing and how you say it <laughs> makes a difference uh, the way sure. you present information. Well, if I can jump in there. So you say it's it's never – pricing is usually not about the price. I think listeners will be intrigued. Can you say a bit more about that? Sure. Yeah. So the uh, example I give here would be you know, we're walking down the street having a great conversation, and then all of a sudden you can smell this amazing scent in the air. It's sweet, and there's a little like hint of salt in there and brown sugar, and you realize it's chocolate chip cookies that are baking. And we're still talking, but we're kind of guided by our noses now, like cartoon characters trying to find the source of this scent. We get in front of a bakery and we see a line of people and they offer us a free sample and say for today only, it's buy three, get one free. Before we know it, we're walking out of there with a uh, you know, cookie in hand and a bag for later. If we do a flip of that, say we're walking down the same street, having the same conversation, someone comes up and shoves a flyer in our faces and says, oh, cookies for today only. If you buy four, you only have to pay for three of them. And hey, I've got samples. Like, 
this guy, we don't want those. How rude is he? We're now talking about what terrible sales experiences we've been through. By the time we see a line and can smell the cookies, we're looking them up to write Yelp reviews about how terrible their tactics are, and we have no interest in buying those cookies. It could be exactly the same cookies in both scenario, and we were going to buy the ones very likely in the first grouping and very likely not in the second, but they could have been very different prices. Those first cookies could have been $3 a piece, and they could have been only 50 cents in the second scenario. But again, it wasn't about the price. It was about the experience. And even though all the same things happened, the order that they came in made a big difference. And in this case, uh, priming, which is that scent of the cookies that draws in that subconscious, happening at the beginning is most important. And then the way that we presented the information and we had some herding and social proof, there are various concepts in there. Uh, but yeah, yeah it's not uh, about the basically, <laughs> Yeah, basically emotional momentum or lack thereof in the second case. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Okay, so pricing, uh, menu, uh, maybe three others that uh, are applications where behavioral economics really proves to help unlock some things for clients? Sure. Yeah. So um, been doing some interesting work with um, a lot with kind of sustainability type of questions these days. And so uh, did a project um, in working with Walmart. And there's an episode about that on my podcast, uh, talking about that project. But really, you know, they're trying to reduce plastic usage and the way that they were uh, looking at that problem. Um, they thinned out the plastic bags, but then you have a problem where they would break and it actually made the problem worse. So in looking at a different way to think about sustainability and plastic, um, allowed to look at some different ways that they could reduce uh, plastic usage and be more sustainable, um, which builds on really, uh, I think I would say the biggest thing that I help businesses with is looking at Uh, really understanding the problem and knowing that because our brains like to think that they're better, faster, stronger than everybody else, including the SF five minutes ago, and we've been really trained to jump into solution mode very quickly, uh, you know, it's far too easy to find the right answer to the wrong question. And if you don't spend enough time thinking about the problem, you can be working on the wrong projects and that's really expensive. And so I love working with companies earlier on in determining if they're working on the right projects and using question storming to help identify the problem as you then scope out the project. Um, the Yeah, no, I remember, I remember that term, question <laughs> storming. I like that a lot. But you're right. You know, before the money's spent, before the egos are invested, mm-hmm. it's you can get an open playing field earlier yeah. in the process. Definitely helps. Yeah. So sustainability and maybe at least one more. Yeah, I would say the last piece is, so actually my second book is coming out this fall. It's how, What Your Employees Need and Can't Tell You. And it's about change management. And so helping to understand how the brain reacts and works with change, how to lead people through change projects and, um, you know, working on bandwidth on teams and working better together. Uh, that change management aspect, I would say, is uh, probably the biggest additional thing I'm working on these days. 
Sure. Um, so I was delighted that one part of the book talked about delight versus satisfaction mm-hmm. and the fact that they are emotionally different and the role of uh, surprise. So obviously, this is very much in EQ space, the name of the podcast. Um, maybe you can elucidate what you wrote for uh, listeners just briefly. Sure. You know, the thing about satisfaction, you know, and that's when we're trying to increase loyalty, which is something that's really important for brands. Um, you may ask a question like, how satisfied were you with your service today on a scale of one to 10? You know, how satisfied were you? And the problem is that satisfaction doesn't actually drive loyalty and you can't ever be super extra satisfied in a way that makes you want to go, you know, tweet about something or, or whatnot, right? You go to the bank, you ask for a hundred dollars, they give you a hundred dollars. I'm very satisfied with that, but not so much that I'm, you know, delighted. And so looking then for delight, the difference is when you don't have an expectation, um, you end up getting a different release of dopamine, which is a chemical that the brain likes if you have something positive that is unexpected that can then lead to delight that somebody wants to go and tweet about or share with their friends. And that can very much drive loyalty. So having too much of an expectation then makes it so someone can only be satisfied. Uh, whereas if you have little moments of delight, it can help people to be much more loyal and that's profitable for a business. Well, it sounds like you should be using that for your husband who wants you to know what your books are before you even write them. Remind <laughs> um, him how important surprise is. You can show him the diagram. Yeah. Say, I, I want to be delighted with my product and I want my readers to be as well. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, we're getting close to the end of the interview. I got at least one more question for you. You talk, of course, about Kahneman's famous in peak rule. And uh, I like the fact that you said, well, it'd be awfully nice if you could end on the peak. Uh, can you explain the concept a bit for listeners who may or may not be familiar with it? And also, uh, I'd be really intrigued if you had an example of where someone really did a good job, maybe a client of yours, uh, eventually getting to the point where they did end on the peak, whether it was advertising or the actual customer experience. And then maybe that same client where they were at before or someone else that you just noticed out in the marketplace and you go, geez, you're just not managing to do that. <laughs> yeah, so the peak end rule is what helps when we think about experience is when if you were to sit down and say okay we're going to update our customer journey and this experience process it can feel very overwhelming because there are so many individual points to consider but the nice thing is our brains kind of gloss over the majority of what happens and you really only have two points that come into evaluating what how we feel about a specific event or experience or interactions over time with a brand, which is the peak, which can either be positive or negative, and then the end, this like kind of most recent uh, item that, that matters for you. And so when you look at how to balance out your, your peaks and your ends and everything, um, if you have an overwhelmingly, uh, you're a positive type of experience, you would like to line up the peak and the end. This is if you are, you know, you think about at a fireworks display, there's the, you know, amazing, uh, all the fireworks at the end, uh, the crescendo in a song or, you know, where you have the end of the movie that build up. It makes it when the peak and the end are both the highest point, 
and it's positive, that is a really great experience for people where they leave feeling this sort of awe moment. Um, when you have a more negative experience and they, uh, Kahneman's testing talks about, um, a painful medical procedure and the peak, the most painful point in the procedure was right at the end in this particular process. And then they were trying to finish as quickly as possible because it's a painful procedure. And uh, so the most painful point was right at the end. And so his team recommended that you should actually extend it a little bit and have it just get gradually a little bit less painful and that people will actually prefer that experience, even though they technically have more time in pain, which is kind of weird. But that is what the study found when you can taper back from that painful experience, you know, it really makes a big difference there. Um, As far as great experiences or examples um, that have to do with this in in either way, um, what I would actually recommend is another book uh, by a friend of mine named Dan Gingis, and it's called The Experience Maker. And he talks all about just really good um, experiences and how you can be incorporating some of these things into them. Um, but I would say the the way that you can have little bits of wit or interest or something that makes people laugh or you have some of that surprise and delight that can come into the uh, process can definitely make it so you have a better overall experience. And, and one tip being really have awareness of what the true end is. So it may feel like this thing somebody calls in and they're upset and you say, well, they're gone forever. Uh, But how might you taper that off to be a better experience and not end there? Um, Another great example and one I know is in the book is from Disney and that they knew um, that the end of the experience isn't when people leave the park. Um, It was actually, and they did a project many, many moons ago uh, with Kodak to make it so when people had to go get their film developed and see the pictures was when they really had that end moment. And so they worked with Kodak to figure out the best colors that would help pop when people printed those images to have a, a much better experience in that photo process versus it being a real letdown. And they painted the streets and things in Disneyland to be these bright colors that would pop in the photos and help that be a better overall experience. So I think that's a good example. Yeah, no, that's good. Um, Real quickly in closing. So uh, consumers are weird. How so? (laughs) All of what we've uh, (laughs) been talking about here in that um, we have some kind of interesting ways that uh, we behave and often people don't do what they should or what you think they should as a brand, what they know they should do or what they want to do. And that's because of how those 35,000, you know, decisions are made every day. Uh, so yeah, that's basically okay. it. <laughs> okay. Well, fair enough. Uh, I want to thank you, Melina, very much for being my guest. This has been episode 112, Consumers Are Weird. Uh, Melina is the author of What Your Customer Wants and Can't Tell You. Uh, if you've enjoyed today's show, of course, give it a rating or review on iTunes. You can find other episodes by going to the New Books Network and typing in Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight in the search bar. Finally, I'd like to conclude every episode with an appropriate epigram. 
in this case, thinking about how much we don't understand our own minds. Uh, I took a quote from the novelist David Foster Wallace, who said, the truth will set you free, but not until it is finished with you. Until next time, take care and be well. Thank you.